Welcome to Season 2 of the Good Life Review Podcast. If you missed Season 1, I encourage you to explore the lovely writers we were able to publish in our debut issue of the Good Life Review. But today, I'm so excited. I have the honor and privilege to interview a poet, a fiction writer, and a personal mentor of mine. My name is Jim Peterson, and uh, two of my stories are in the of this upcoming issue of uh, Good Life Review, and they are a story called The Belt and a story called Go Get the Gun. We start the interview talking about The Belt, and I asked Jim, what do you think this story is really about? Well, you know, that's a really good question, but I, I'm not absolutely sure, and I'll tell you why. Um, I wrote it quite a long, the first draft of it I wrote, a long time ago. In fact, so long ago that I can't tell you how long ago. I don't, I'm not even sure, but probably t- uh, at least 20 years, maybe maybe more than that. And uh, it was very, and still is, very, um, uh, it's it's narrative, what am I, it's expository. It's very, it, it's, the story is constructed through a lot of exposition rather than scenes. And so I thought, I, I, I kind of gave up on it. But then when I was putting this collection together, I, I went back and dug up some of my old stories and found this one. And I, I found that I liked it. Um, and so I, 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 I revised it and got it ready for the, for the collection. Uh, but I, have a, I had a very volatile relationship with my father, like so many sons do. And so I think uh, that all of the stuff that I write that has to do with fathers and sons grows out of that, that relationship with my, my real father. Yeah. And um, there's an episode in this story where the stepfather, not the father, but the stepfather whips him with that belt. And uh, my father was uh, believed in, you know, if you, if you spare the, if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. My father believed that. And uh, so I got the belt myself when I was a kid uh, more than once. Uh, So I think I've always wanted to put that in something. (laughs) Yeah. And you have these um, interesting characters that are part of the belt, you know, like the, the characters of the, the different scribblings and things. Um, Yeah. Is there a significance to the, the symbolism there? They're, they're a mystery. They're, they're symbols that, that, that are not found anywhere else. And they represent things that we don't really know what they are. And the story never reveals them. But there's a sense that the boy understands them at the end. There's that sense that the father, whatever that understanding was that the father had, he passed it on to his son. Um, but I've, I've always, all my life, I've been interested in the great mysteries in the occult, uh, in the spiritual quest, and all of those things have been interesting to me. And so that's one of the ways that they surface, I think, in, in this story, is with these mysterious symbols that nobody really knows what they mean, but they somehow are active in the world. They have agency in the world, these, uh, these mysterious symbols. When we studied, where I studied with you, magical realism was something I was kind of just dabbling in. Right. Uh, but these, both of these stories have a symbol, some symbolism in them. 
this is definitely magical realism. There's, there's nothing in Go Get the Gun that couldn't actually happen. But there are things in this one and in the belt that you might really question, you know, that stretches reality uh, and and becomes maybe maybe you could justify it as realistic if you think of it as psychological, that these things are happening in the mind of the boy. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's it's much more of the magical realism than the other, I think. Oh, I agree. One hundred percent. So one thing that I noticed I was reading and there's in, you know, the reader sometimes has a, a different vision than the writer does. So uh, sure. you can tell me if I went wrong or rogue. But so there's there seems to be this dance between light and dark in this boy, you know, and like there's examples all over the place. But like there's this lightning storm overnight. Mm-hmm. And then the next day it's a crisp, clear morning that's beautiful and, and, and bright. And then the stepfather versus the father. And I thought that was really an interesting way that you kind of talked about maybe the depth of this well, particular character and the father and the relationships. The way I see it, um, a kind of uh, jolt, a jolt that takes him out of his life. Uh, I don't mean that it kills him, but it takes him out of his, out of the heaviness of his psychological life. Another, in other words, the thing that what weighs us down in this life is our accumulation of stuff that we carry in our minds and in our hearts too, uh, and even in our muscle memory, we carry these things. Like the when my father whipped me with that belt when I was a child, that has stayed in my body and in my memory all this time. So it's a kind of heaviness that. You could call it conditioning that uh, alters our way of being in the world. We we are, you know. And so, what if what if something very powerful happens that jolts all of that out of your system? You know, it kind of knocks that out of your system. Now you can walk free. You're not being, you're not responding to the world through the cloud of that, of those past experiences that wounded you or that did something that shaped you in a way that maybe you don't really want, you know? So I think that's what it is for me. I think my, my sense of the story is that the father found this, this found this out, you know, like when he goes to church with, with the boy and the mother, he's not, he's not affected by what's happening in church at all. The father and the mother is trying to get him to, you know, to be a, a good, upstanding Christian. But the father has already found what he wants. He's already got it. And it's this other thing that can't be said. And so I think that's what I was hoping that the reader would, would, would get. Would that be that sense that the boy, the father had it and the boy found it too. That's really powerful. I like that. Mm. Very cool. Um. Do you want to talk about Go Get the Gun? We can do that, certainly. <laughs> what, what was this piece about in your mind? Well, you know, uh, this one I wrote a, a t- in a totally spontaneous um, way. I had I just started out. I don't know what the first line of the story is, but I just started out with a line and just kept writing. 
I went through a period of about six months where I was writing almost exclusively that way. And I still write that way a lot in my fiction, especially. Uh, I start, um, I just will start with a line. And that little story just popped out. You know, I wrote it in one sitting. And of course, I've revised it some, but it all just came straight out. And I had no idea where it was going or what it was going to do. So it surprised me. It surprised the hell out of me when I got to that climactic point in the story, because I didn't know what was out there, you know, uh, until I got there. And then I saw what was out there. That to me is a very interesting part of the process. If, if you can work that way, it's exciting. It doesn't always create a great story or a great poem, but sometimes uh, it's that point at which the writer surprises herself that the story then becomes a, something really surprising for the reader too. Yeah, it was extremely surprising, especially at that climax moment again of that yeah. I, I keep thinking about this lightness versus this darkness because right in, in the right. Middle, right when that happens, like the line that grabbed me, it's I realized I was crying too, trembling with a fear I couldn't name. We held on to each other for a while and then we went back inside, leaving the deer in the darkness. The deer had just passed away because he had shot it. It was wounded. Right. Um, right. Yeah, super. Yeah, just a, a moment of excitement. Yeah, I think, and I think it's the kind of moment. Again, I'm looking for that in life, and I'm looking for it in my in my stories and poems. It's a moment that knocks you off the track you're on. It knocks you out of your the groove you're in, uh, and suddenly you're seeing something past that. You're seeing something larger than that. So all of a sudden, this couple realizes that whatever problem they were having in their argument before is nothing. Right. You know? They decided, oh, I don't want a divorce. I don't want a divorce either. <laughs> They're just like, you know, and yeah, that argument was just, was just nothing. Uh, and compared to the thing that it just, they had just witnessed and participated in, uh, which gave them a more powerful sense of the beauty and the power of life, I guess. And also the, you know, the significance of death, too. So, uh, yeah, again, that's the way I see it. And I hope it comes off that way, that it was a genuinely altering moment for them. Absolutely. Next up, I asked Jim what writers inspired his work. Well, one, one of I just finished uh, uh, Charles Baxter's. Uh, the, it's a collected uh, short stories of Charles Baxter. Uh, magnificent, I think. I think he's a great, great uh, storyteller, a great short story writer. Not long ago, I finished a collection uh, by my uh, my friend Patricia Henley, a book called uh, "Other Heartbreaks." Uh, that that's a terrific collection of short. She's a ma- she's a, a master short storyteller. Let's see. Um, Tobias Wolf was the one I was trying to think of. Again, I, I, I bought a collected story, you know, not just one volume, but a collected stories. So I was reading stories from early in his career in the middle and towards more recent stories. He's also very, very fine. Uh, he, I find his stories a bit depressing, but he's he's uh, he pulls it off. You know, he's he's really, really good. Jim doesn't stop there. He's got plenty of other writers to encourage us. Anjali Sachdeva is her name. And the title is very similar to uh, all the names we have for God or something like that. 
but the stories are magnificent, mind-blowing, beautiful writing, uh, and um, and totally startling and surprising. Uh, I would recommend that collection to anybody, uh, especially if you like magical realism. So the name of the publication that we work with is called The Good Life Review. So something I like to ask everybody is, what does the good life mean to you? How do you know you're living a good life? I think we can get too busy looking for the good life. Uh, Instead of kind of uh, welcoming whatever the life is that we have, (laughs) the life that we currently have, and kind of... um, yeah, just like I was talking about before with the stories, uh, with that, the belt story. If we can kind of just step clear of the past some and just enjoy what our life is right now, you know, and live it now and not worry about trying to reach something like the good life. I think there's I think that's a, a powerful thing. Um, uh, so uh, and if, if if that were to happen, <laughs> But it is happening. That's the interesting thing for me. It's happening. In other words, the good life is is the life I am having, whatever it is. There's no other way. There's no other life I can live other than the one that I am living that's being lived. So that to me, I've come to terms with it. And that to me is the good life. Whatever life I'm able to live right now, that's, that I'm like talking to you right now is is the good life. What great fortune, good fortune, you know, I'm getting to talk to Trey, you know, that's the, that's the good life. And I can name other things. I have a wonderful dog uh, and a great relationship with my dog. That means a lot to me. I lo- I, that's part of the good life for me. And I have a, uh, a good, great relationship with um, uh, a wonderful woman. Uh, that's part of the good life for me. Uh, but if those things weren't there, Seeing that the life is good is whatever it is, is still important, right? I, that's what I'm trying to get to that that understanding. Now, anyone that knows Jim knows that his corgi is adorable. So, if you want to check out a picture, go to thegoodlifereview.com and look at his author bio. Um, but I had to ask him a couple of questions about his dog. So, you, do you still have the same corgi, the same dog? I do. She's lying over there on the floor. listening to me she she gets tired of that sometimes but uh she's always she's always close by yeah yeah my mama kia is her name which basically means moon or moon goddess a very highfalutin name for a little dog so before we get to you reading your work, you have a couple books coming out, and I wanted to talk a little bit. Uh, one that just released in September, and then one coming up in the end of this year, 2021 anyway. So, The one that just came out is this one. It's called The Horse Who Bears Me Away, and it's from Red Hen Press, and it's a collection of poems, a big old fat collection of poems. Isn't that great? And it's, uh, I think it's the best book I've ever written of any kind. I just, I love this book and I've had a lot of fun. Uh, I've had the opportunity to do some readings online uh, and uh, some virtual readings. And I, I love reading the poems in it. It's got some prose in it too. It's got five prose pieces in, right in the heart of it. Um, I'm very excited about that. And then... Uh, coming uh, next year, in the fall of next year, is a collection of stories called uh, The Sadness of Whirlwinds. 
And, uh, and that's going to have these two stories that we were just talking about. It's going to have those stories in it. Uh, and I'm excited about that, too, because uh, it's my first collection of short stories. I've re- I published a novel back in 2005. Yeah. But this is stories and very unusual stories, very odd, I guess, or mysterious or uh, kinds of stories, uh, magical realism, most of them. So I'm excited to see, you know, it's going to be a beautiful book, I think, uh, from what I'm hearing from Red Hen. And I'm excited to get that one out there and I have a chance to read some of those. Hopefully, I, I, I'm working on more stories now and I'm hoping that uh, I'll have another collection of stories and, and maybe a novel who knows maybe another yeah. novel too how exciting maybe we'll see <laughs> before we have Jim read his story one of his stories I'm gonna do a quick bio on him uh, Jim Peterson is a retired coordinator of creative writing at Randolph College and remains on the faculty of the University of Nebraska at Omaha's MFA program in creative writing which is where I got to meet the famous Jim Peterson. He currently lives with his charismatic corgi in Lynchburg, Virginia. The belt. It stretched down the length of the closet door like an unrolled scroll. The boy laid it across his palms, the gold buckle clinking slightly. It had belonged to his father before he went off to the war from which he didn't return. Two of those who did had visited the house and told the boy that his father died bravely in battle. They described some of the fighting for him, the hand-to-hand, how brutal it was. His father used to wear the belt when he wasn't working as a carpenter, building the new houses in their rural county or repairing the old ones. He'd worn it when they went to town to buy supplies, when they hiked down to the river to fish, when they attended church on Sundays, though he never repeated the words of the Apostles' Creed or the Lord's Prayer, nor did he sing the hymns from the worn hymnals, though the boy's mother made up for it by singing loud enough for all three of them. When the preacher called for sinners to repent and walk down the aisle to salvation, the boy's mother slid her elbow into his father's side, but he remained so still and erect in the pew that the boy thought his father had left his body and flown to some ancient mission out in the forest that they sometimes explored together. At these moments, the boy would study his father's lean face, the creases around the mouth and closed eyes, the scoops and knolls of the bone structure under the skin. And the boy then thought, what an amazing and strange landscape a human face is. At night, he sometimes had dreams that were journeys over the continent of his father's face. On the inside of the belt, his father had burned a message in his own code. His father had been like that, mysterious, seeming to keep some private knowledge to himself. He carried himself as a man who knows things, not like how to roof a house, though he knew that and many other such skills, but something he carried within him that words couldn't touch. The boy tried the belt on, but it was way too large for him, the long tongue of its excess hanging down. Still, it felt right on his body. He packed his backpack and crept out of the house and away from his mother and stepfather watching television in the den, believing the belt would lead him somehow to an adventure beyond his dull summer vacation. He soon found the woods his father had loved half a mile from the house and followed a doe and two young bucks into the dark edge. He tucked his father's belt inside his pants so it wouldn't catch on thorns. 
After picking his way through for a mile or so, he found a trail and decided to go wherever it led him. When he took off his shoes and socks, waded across a knee-deep creek and mounted the opposite bank, he felt that he'd passed into a different world where constant readiness was required. He carefully put his socks and shoes back on, tying the laces into double knots, looking around alertly as if the very air might consume him. He had enough food in his pack for three days, a pocket knife his father had reluctantly given him for his birthday, a spoon he'd stolen from a kitchen drawer, and a small flashlight with a pack of spare batteries. Much later, when he rediscovered the belt in an old chest of drawers as a middle-aged man, it was too small, the tip of the tongue barely slipping through the buckle at his waist, the last hole far short of the prong. He'd not realized he'd become physically bigger than his father. He laid the belt out on his dresser, disappointed, wondering what to do with it. For one thing, it was still beautiful. The leather for most of its length so dark it reminded him of the darkest chocolate. Sewn into the front of the belt surrounding the buckle was leather of a lighter shade in the shape of narrow serrated leaves, penetrating the darker scroll. And then burned into the rough inside hide of the belt were 37 symbols, indecipherable as letters or numbers. The man marveled at his father's imagination that could create so many unique forms. He hung the belt behind all of his others out of sight so his wife wouldn't see it and ask questions. But one day, when she was devoting herself to many details of cleaning the house, she did find it. And so he sat her down that night and told her the story of the belt. He would have given the belt to his own son, but he had died of complications at birth and his wife could have no more children. On the first day in the woods, the boy came upon a bear in a great patch of berries. A large male, he rocked back on his haunches and looked at the boy for a moment without fear or ill intention, then ambled off, a huge black cloud disintegrating into the forest. The boy gorged himself on blueberries, listening to the bear's slow progress through the underbrush. One day, he saw a female red wolf digging in pine straw. He stared at him. She stared at him with the steady fire of her eyes, then trotted off, head slung low, tongue flopping from the side of her mouth. The boy went to the spot and found a footprint there, much larger than his own, a man's. The tread of a boot sole recorded like a fossil in the hard clay. Could it be his father's? No, the weather would have washed it away a long time ago. Another day, through a gap in the canopy, the boy saw an eagle soaring high in the sky. The eagle landed in the top of a nearby sycamore. Male or female, the boy couldn't tell. The boy felt that the bird was watching him as he passed beneath. He kept looking back to catch sight of the eagle among the highest leaves, the fierce clench of its head, the cool witnessing of its black eye. The forest was full of watching and listening. The boy spent one whole day carving each of the 37 symbols of his father's belt into a different tree. At last, they meant something to him in the woods, though he couldn't say exactly what it was, as if the unknowable nature of his father would linger there forever, or at least as long as those trees remained. At night, he ate his peanut butter sandwiches and oatmeal cookies, drank creek water from his canteen, and let the darkness come to him. The forest canopy held back the light of stars and moon, and the darkness was almost complete. 
He turned his flashlight on, and the trunks of trees stood around him like giant horses sleeping on their feet. Would they ever wake up? Would they stretch their legs and walk? Were they protecting him or oblivious to him? He turned out the flashlight and listened to the creaking of limbs in the breeze, sounding like the voices of whales he'd heard in a documentary on TV. He listened to the calls of owls hunting, sometimes heard the whoop, whoop, whoop of their wings among the limbs over his head. One night there was a storm, and though it was summer and the weather mild, the boy shivered in the heavy rain. When lightning struck a nearby tree, the flash of light and explosion of thunder was so strong they transported him into a silent, deep place inside himself, where he sat so still in the pew next to his father, he thought he would never move again, hypersensitive, though, to the congregation around him, the slightest adjustments of their bodies, a cough, a subtle amen, the words coming from the pulpit like wind chimes or the knocking of a tree on the window. Then he suddenly felt the current pouring through his body, an intensity that stretched the boundaries of every cell, and yet he was aware of no pain. He withdrew into the dark place inside, like repelling down into a well. He became less and less of himself, going down until he curled up at the bottom like smoke, and then not even that. If time passed, it was none of his concern. If there was light at the top of the well, it didn't enter his eyes. If somewhere his mother and stepfather were worried about him, he didn't care. They would just have to get over it. The darkness and silence and emptiness descended on him with a weight unlike anything he'd ever known. But this weight felt good, felt like a warm, heavy blanket covering everything. The boy rested. He would have been happy if it lasted forever. The 37 symbols of his father's belt slowly appeared like glowing embers in the wall of the well around him. He had no mind left with which to interpret their meanings. They just existed, the alphabet maybe of a language that had never formed. He had plenty of time, so he studied each one as if it held the secret of the universe. Without words, how does meaning arise? And yet he felt it and knew it. And when he knew that he knew it, each symbol crawled slowly up the wall of the well until it disappeared somewhere up there in the night sky. And then, slowly, the boy felt himself become a cold body, curled up on the dusty floor of a dried-up well. A crow's call drew him up the tunnel of the well and deposited him in a bright, clear morning. He lay on the pine straw floor of the woods, his eyes were dry and covered with the crust of the deepest sleep he'd ever known. He was still drenched from the rain, but no longer cold, and his body hummed with a relic of the current. One day, the boy stumbled out of the trees and into the sunlight of a dirt road. A farmer in a pickup truck gave the boy a ride home, only a few miles away after all. His mother despaired of his thinness, hugged him and cried and didn't let go of him once for a whole week. The first chance he got, his stepfather whipped the boy with his father's belt and made him vow never to hurt his mother like that again. The boy bears the marks on his scrawny old legs to this day, the remnants of his father's code catching fire on his skin and swelling into his whole body when lightning comes close. The boy, who became a man and now an old man, sometimes thought he could hear those symbols crawling out of the woods and toward the house and the dry leaves of fall. 
Over the years, he whittled each of the symbols into freestanding forms, which he would have given to his son, but which now lay randomly about the house, saying and not saying whatever it was his father knew and that he knew but could not speak. He could feel it when he sat on the porch with his wife in the evening after work. When he lay down in the bed those first moments before falling asleep, he felt it. There were days when he felt it constantly, that presence for which he had no name, because he knew it wasn't his father, but rather the understanding of his father that lived in the still continent of his face. If you want to read more, you can head to thegoodlifereview.com. Thanks for listening to the Good Life Review podcast. We are very excited to keep producing these podcasts and bringing you great stories from our current writers. A huge thank you to our editorial team that is mostly based out of Nebraska and almost entirely made up of writers from the flyover states, which is why we don't want your work to be overlooked. If you have a piece you'd like to submit, head on over to our submittable page, which is thegoodlifereviewsubmittable.com. And don't forget to like us on social media. On Facebook, we're The Good Life Review. On Twitter, The Good Life Lit Mag. Thank you for listening. We hope that despite these difficult days, you are indeed living a good life.